where we give you a new perspective on events happening in our world today. This is GNN. This is God Network News, Episode 71. Welcome, GNN fans, to another episode of God Network News, the podcast that tells you what God's doing around the world, not what CNN tells you, but what GNN tells you is going on in the world. If you're tired of listening to all of that crisis network news and you want to hear what God's doing, well, give us a listen. In this episode of God Network News, we will be listening to an interview done of a very good friend of mine named Dr. Todd Johnson. He's an incredible man and a very good friend of mine and has really rocked the planet in terms of missions, really had a tremendous input into it, positive input. He is being interviewed by an equally amazing man, Justin Long. Justin Long is also a friend of mine. Uh, he is a missions researcher, scholar. You can see more of his works, his writings, and some of his statistical research on missions at justinlong.org. A little bit about Dr. Todd Johnson. He is responsible for the World Christian Database at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston. This is a tremendous database, and it actually started with another brother, uh, Dr. David Barrett, who Todd Johnson began to work under many years ago and continued his work after Dr. Barrett passed away. I first met Todd Johnson in Pasadena, California around 1986. He was working with the U.S. Center for Rural Missions at that time, and I was also located there at their Pasadena campus. This is now called uh, Frontier Ventures, if you want to look them up on the web. Todd Johnson got his Ph.D. there at the University of William Carey International University, met his wife, started his career in missions and in research. Uh, My wife and I also received our master's degree from the same university campus there. Todd Johnson began working with Dr. Barrett uh, years ago. Dr. Barrett was the foremost researcher on world Christianity. For many years he had done research and had been building a database and he was really on the cutting edge of that and Todd Johnson basically took that over from him. Together they developed the World Christian Database as it is today. Todd and David published the much anticipated World Christian Encyclopedia in 1982 and now you can find that on the internet. You can order it. Todd also authored a book entitled Atlas of Global Christianity in 2015. This is what was written up about the Atlas of Global Christianity. The Atlas of Global Christianity is a thorough visual reference of the changing status of global Christianity over the hundred years since the epic-making Edinburgh 1910 World Missionary Conference. So it basically entails all of the modern missions movement and what took place and the results of it. It is the first scholarly atlas to depict the 20th century shift of Christianity from the global north, that's northern countries and continents, to the global south or developing nations, as we sometimes call them. 
Contextual information on world issues and world religions is included in that book. The atlas is ecumenical in that it covers every Christian tradition, including Anglicans, Independents, Marginals, Orthodox, Protestants, and Roman Catholics. This is the first atlas to incorporate historical essays on Christianity from 1910 to 2010, so a 100-year span there, by scholars from each region of the world, which is incredible. So you get a great Christian view of everything that's going on from their perspective. Included is a CD that contains all maps and graphs for classroom use. An amazing reference book. It is big, but it's definitely well worth um, its weight in gold. Uh, Todd also authored several other scholarly books on the topic of Christianity and missions and statistics related to that, not least of which is his new book, Our Global Families, Christians Embracing Common Identity in a Changing World. He uh, authored that in 2015. A wonderful book. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it wherever books are sold. Todd's an incredible scholar. Uh, an incredible husband, father, and a great friend to me. Let's have a listen to this wonderful interview with Todd Johnson by Justin Lowe. This is a Think Tank with uh, Todd Johnson. And Todd, why don't you start by introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your current position and... and um, then maybe how you got into research. Okay, I'm uh, currently the uh, director of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, which is located uh, on the campus of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in um, South Hamilton, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. And uh, we study Christianity in every country of the world and the activities of Christians uh, from every uh, denomination, mission agency, and try to understand the extent of um, mission, evangelistic activities, financial activities, and uh, all of those sort of things. Um, I got involved in research really through the um, encouragement of Ralph Winter, who uh, founded the U.S. Center for World Mission in Pasadena, and I actually ended up marrying his youngest daughter, Tricia. Uh, but he, uh, I had always had a great uh, interest in mathematics and science, but never really saw the intersection uh, of those with um, mission or, you know, with, with global Christianity. So I was really thrilled to find uh, ways in which I could um, put to use the, you know, the, the uh, mathematical uh, studies and formulas and sort that sort of a thing, uh, and relate it to uh, uh, global Christianity. So, in fact, one of the first things that I did with him is uh, to do a statistical comparison of the student volunteer movement a hundred years ago with the wow. current Urbana meetings. And one of the uh, surprising things is. Um, that uh, because of the massive increase of students around the world over the last hundred years, the uh, proportion of, of uh, students who were involved in the student volunteer movement was 10 or 15 times higher than it is currently. Um, 
I mean, their meetings were 5,000, 8,000 people, but hardly anybody was going to college. So the coverage of that movement was just enormous. And I somewhere I have a graph showing that difference. But that was one of the first projects that I worked on. I actually hadn't thought about that. So, so the student volunteer movement was actually far more influential in the U.S. college scene back in that day than than the movements that we have today because of just the differences in population. Right. Yeah. It's the num- the numerical side of it is pretty clear. Right. You know what? What the the influence is another question. Right. True. Looked looked into, but yeah, that was the basic idea. I did want to say I saw you guys are holding your 50-year anniversary for um, research that started uh, somewhat with David Barrett back in back in the day. That's right. We um, we located documents here which show that uh, Barrett started his research in somewhere around March of 1965. And uh, we realized that that was uh, 50 years ago. So we're going to celebrate and commemorate that uh, up here uh, in in March. Um, Barrett, of course, at that time, he was living in Nairobi, Kenya. And he, he actually did his first project, not on East Africa, but on West Africa. And he published a survey of, of uh, churches and tribes and evangelization in West Africa in 1965. And uh, that that grew into further research on African independent churches, which was his dissertation, and then that grew into the World Christian Encyclopedia. Yeah, so, which um, yeah. I have a copy. Well, I don't see it on my wall just at the moment, but I do have a copy of his original dissertation, and of course, I've got a copy of the of the first edition of the Encyclopedia. So that kind of segues into. Um, can you can you briefly describe for people who aren't very familiar with the process how how do you count Christians around the world? Right. So, um, really, the challenge is making sense of of a lot of data that's already collected. So, you, one might think we you know go out and physically try to count people, mm-hmm. um, but a, but actually, um, you know, governments, let's say, they collect a lot of information. Um, half of the censuses in the world have a religion question where someone's going to click a box that says Christian. So that's one way we find out something. Um, and then um, and there's lots of surveys and polls, and that is also very helpful. Um, but the churches themselves collect a lot of information. So we have handbooks from all over the world. Um, you know, the Catholic Church in India, the Orthodox Church in Turkey, which is quite small, but they produce uh, something, you know, and um, Lutherans in Tanzania and, um, you know, African independent churches across the continent and Pentecostals in Brazil and so on. Mm-hmm. So so between information collected by governments and by pollsters, and information collected by the religious communities, that gives you a pretty good start. And then, then that, that you couldn't really um, put together an absolutely complete picture of Christianity from that. You also need um, you know, people who do studies of particular churches, and that there's a lot of those out there. Um, and then uh, finally, it's good to know people in all of these places. So you can ask, you know, why did this show this number, you know, for um, 
Presbyterians and this other report was twice as much and you know because there's all there's inconsistencies all over the world but uh, so between these different sources uh, and we list 13 of them and in a book that we wrote uh, last year saying how we do this Mm -hmm. um, there you know 13 different sources then the real challenge is just to make sense of it Um, you know to try to figure out uh, why the numbers differ from you know, in different places. And some of these num- differing numbers are are very important. They're numbers that are in the news every day. And one example is uh, Christians in Egypt. You know, Egypt's been in the news a lot for the last several years that with the, the Arab Spring. And um, you'll see that the government uh, of Egypt takes a census and they say it's now 5% of the country that's Christian. But the Christians claim you know, 15 and sometimes 20%. Um, and we've investigated this as thoroughly as we can. And we have informants and contacts in Egypt. And we think it's about 10%. And uh, I suppose in this case, that's a number that's used a lot. You know, the BBC will say 10%. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, someone will say it's five. But I think most of us don't believe it's actually that low. We think it's uh, higher. And of course, this is mainly Coptic Orthodox Christians who've been there for, um, you know, 20 centuries. So uh, it's, you know, that, that's some of these uh, numbers are actually quite significant um, in, in international relations and in the news and that sort of a thing. Sure. So, a similar situation I've just been looking at, again, is the situation in, uh, in India where the government there consistently undercounts the number of Christians as well. Right. Uh, so you, right. you get that kind of thing. Um, okay, so there's another number that that uh, comes out of, of the research that you guys do, and that's the number of unevangelized. So let's talk a bit about how you calculate that. Okay, that goes back to um, you know once you once you've counted the Christians, then the, maybe the next question is to ask uh, what evangelistic um, uh, resources have they produced and and uh, who are they evangelizing and, and so on. And this is a matter of uh, usually of language, since most of these things are done in a particular language. So um, uh, over the years, David Barrett began to collect this kind of information, like the status of Bible translations and radio broadcasting and church planting and all sorts of things. And so by the time uh, we got to, let's say, to, the, to our book, World Christian Trends, um, which you were involved in, the, the then we identified 20 factors, 20 things that you could measure uh, when you're trying to see the extent uh, of evangelization in a people. And from those 20 things, we developed a formula. So in, in a sense, you start with the Christian population, and then you build layers, you know, maybe 20 layers, you could say. And each of these layers is a, is a certain percentage of the rest of the people in that particular people group. Because again, it's done by language, so we measure at the level of people groups or ethno-linguistic groups. Um, and then as you add those layers saying, okay, here's here's how many are likely to be evangelized by the Bible being in, in, in their language and so on, um, then finally you you get a number, and that's actually the number that we calculate, which is you know, how many non-Christians have been evangelized or have likely, have likely, is a better with a, um, 
a number of uh, people who have not been evangelized, and that's the concept of the unevangelized. Um, so, you know, we had a little bit of a glitch there, so let me let me back up the the number. So you calculate the number of people who've been evangelized as a result of these ministries, and we should note that, as you were saying, with the numbers of Christians, those numbers of people evangelized by certain ministries, that's based on studies that have been done of the effectiveness of those tools. So right, right. there are studies right. of, you know, if the Jesus film is active or if the Bible is present, there's a study that says, as a result of that, conservatively speaking, this number of people are effective. Yeah, we try to be conservative, and it's sort of under normal circumstances, this would be what happens. Uh, we also, I, I should mention, we added, we, we know that there that almost nowhere in the world is it normal. So we added three negative factors. If you, if you have persecution, if you have, you know, low literacy, and a few other things that tend to impact uh, whether or not, uh, you know, evangelization is successful or goes out. So these, this is really just a way to estimate uh, mm-hmm. the situation because you can't, I mean, the, the proper way to do this would be to go to every single people in the world and survey. And even then, you, who knows if you'd get answers that were honest or whatever. So this is, this is, a, this is a broad estimation. Um, but it does then give us three categories, which we've used uh, throughout the years. One is the Christians, which is where we started. The next is, is evangelized non-Christians and then unevangelized. So you have those three different um, groups, and you have those groups in every single people group in the world. Um, and, of course, uh, that's how you get uh, our estimate of how many people have been evangelized, which we've been publishing really for the last um, 25 years now, 25, 30 years. And which is now, uh, I think, 2.3 um, billion? Well, it's in, yeah, it's in our latest um, right. publication, the International Bulletin of Missionary Research. It, it's uh, somewhere around there. Yeah, and it's going up. Yeah, it's creeping up because of population growth. Um, and one thing that I think is happening is, um, you know, there's been a lot of successful missionary work and, and evangelistic work in the last couple of decades. So it's a little surprising. How could this, how could this still be going up, the, the number of unevangelized? But um, I think what it is, is that um, the, the very hardest situations are still the ones that have the least effort among them. And they're, and so in a sense, we've, you know, saved the hardest for last, which is usually not a good idea. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so what that means is that with, you know, pretty high growth rates, birth rates mm-hmm. um, in these places, that it's really hard to, to catch up at the end, you might say, at the, after having made really remarkable progress in the growth of Christianity around the world in the 20th century and with, uh, you know, a lot of missionary uh, work at the, um, well, throughout the 20th century, but even at the end and the beginning of our 21st century, um, you know, anybody who knows anything about missions knows this is a pretty exciting time. There's a lot happening. And it's not, you know, it's, it's really not limited to Western agencies sending people, but now there's people from everywhere going everywhere, as you well know. Yeah. So, so it's an interesting mix of a story. It's very exciting. Very, you can report on a lot of progress, but there's still difficulties. And maybe you know you can sort of compare this to 
um, attempts to to eradicate disease or to get rid of poverty and um, and there have been remarkable achievements in those areas too but it's really hard um, to, to get to the people who've had you know the least attention yeah so I think that's that explains some of it yeah so now this 86 percent number um, it, it got a lot of uh it still gets a lot of attention. I think it's one of the things that I, I talk with people about uh, frequently. And the original way that I had seen it was 86% of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists don't personally know a Christian. Uh, it, it's actually it's actually more th- broader than that. But let's start with how did you get the idea to to calculate this number? Yeah, well, it, it's actually directly related to what we were just talking about, and that is. We noticed uh, as we were putting together these 20 factors of how Christians evangelize that two of the factors were what we would consider internal um, evangelization within a people group. And a lot of the others were more external, even though, you know, well, well, Bible translation sometimes takes place outside and then is then utilized, you know, in the group. Uh, these um, evangelistic factors are very closely related to um, the people themselves reaching out. And um, so what that, what that did, it gave me the idea, and we began to talk about internal and external evangelization, although it's not something that we published a lot about, but we were just thinking about it. Uh, and then someone came along several years ago and, and asked me, um, you know, how many you know, what percentage of Muslims have a Christian friend? That was the question I was asked. Mm. And, and I immediately, I said, it, they said, could you possibly guess or have any way of knowing? And I said, oh, we have no way of knowing that what that is. But then I realized that that wasn't quite right because we had made estimates, in, in, like in a Muslim people group where most people are Muslims, we had made estimates of how many Christians were there and then we had these two layers of outreach, of, of contact, really. It, it was of discipleship, contact, that kind of a thing. And it occurred to me that, well, those are the people that, you know, if you're going to try to guess or estimate, those are the people within that, that uh, those layers, those two layers, who would be most likely to know Christians, to, to have Christian friends. I mean, you can use different phrases here. Um, and, and again, it's an estimation that, you know, we don't know for sure. Right. right. Um, but I thought maybe this is a, maybe this would work. So I actually, um, Peter Crossing, who, you know, our data analyst and I worked out a formula for how we could figure out, you know, how many people were in those two layers, um, you know, beyond Christianity, but obviously not very far, usually into the rest of the people group. And, um, and, and that was the beginning of this calculation. And I ran it by people all over the world. I said, here's the result we got for your people. Does this sound reasonable to you? So I, that, that was the only thing we could do since there really isn't um, survey work that's been done. Mm-hmm. Um, although there is now more in the United States. I don't know. There, there, people have been asking these kind of questions. Do you know someone in another religion and that sort of thing? So we're getting a little more data uh, but mainly in the Western world, and where this is most interesting is is in the rest of the world. So, um, but anyway, I had I had many many people tell me, yeah, that that sounds about right. Or um, hardly anybody told me that that it was too much. 
in the sense of that we were overestimating the number who had friends. Mm-hmm. You know? so, and, and this is the opposite of what you started out with. So what we're saying is 14% of all Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists in the world have a Christian friend. Or, or have, I think we're, we've, we're using the language um, um, personally know uh, a Christian. Right. Not necessarily so, a friend, but at least personally. Yeah, but I mean, there's many different ways you can talk about it. And, and it is, again, just a, just a, a rough estimate of, of the situation. Um, and, and I think the phrase, you know, personally know or, or what ha- has been the thing that has gained the most traction in, you know, in the press, so to speak, or among mission mobilizers and that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had a few people tell me it's too high. Um, in other words, the 14% is too high, huh. but I've never had anybody tell me it's too low. Um, so, so in a, in a sense, 86% is probably a conservative estimate. It probably is a little higher. Um, and, and you might know all over the world, there's, there's, there have been, um, you know, studies of one kind or another showing the lack of contact between people in different religions. And that affects Christianity as well. Um, so there was one done by Pew. I saw not too long back. It's, it's been, uh, kind of tweeted around a lot. There's a a thing where they show, uh, most Christians are in Christian countries. Most, uh, Muslims are in Muslim countries and there's not that, not that overlap. So most Christians are in a majority Christian setting. They're not, I think that's the way that goes. Right. Yeah, that's right. That, that's, that's part of the dynamic, uh, behind this. Um, now, now the, the data that we published and it's most complete in our Atlas where we have published a very nice global table broken down by religion in one direction and by uh, United Nations regions in the other. So you can say, what is our estimate, you know, for the number of, um, Hindus who know a Christian in Europe? You know, I mean, we have it like that. And, um, just generally speaking, um, the way this formula works, it tends to be higher. Um, the number is higher in Christian contexts. And that's, so, so in other words, the, if, if we say it's 14%, you know, on average, it's actually a little lower. It might be as low as 10% in some of the core regions of these religions. Um, so, so it isn't, it isn't an even 14%. It's actually quite a bit lower you know, like in Saudi Arabia or someplace like that. Right. Where, whereas, you know, if you go to Britain or Norway or the United States, the numbers for Muslims who know a Christian are a lot higher, given this formula. And um, that may or may not be the, the case. I think it is higher, but whether it's as high as we say it is. Uh, and those are more likely to be tested by polls, because almost all the polls and surveys are done in the Western world. So, um would be interesting now, to follow why would it be what why, why would why would it be that for example you think in America you've got a, a Muslim diaspora generally speaking part part of it is a diaspora and part of it is uh, some internal growth in Islam but there's a lot of Christians in America right, so right. what would be the situation in which uh, a Muslim in America would be would be less likely that it would be less likely that they would know a believer no, it's it's the other way around. They're much more likely. More likely, okay. Yeah, which I think is 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 a um, 
is something you would try you would guess would be the case okay. but there's still a, a, a there's still an alarming gap be, in in uh, friendship and hospitality between christians and muslims in the united states you know i mean that's been a problem but but like when we did a um a course at my church on world religions we, we originally thought you know we kind of live away from boston far enough that you know it's there's not a lot of diversity way out here uh even though boston itself is is one of you know very diverse but uh, the first thing that happened is we said you know the first day you know how many of you have co-workers that are muslims hindus or buddhists and almost everybody raised their hand Hmm. So, you know, and they all they work in all these different industries and they go into Boston or even stay up in this area and they oh yeah, my you know, the guy I work with is a Muslim and uh this woman is a Hindu that I work with. So there's actually a, quite a bit of interaction in, you know, within people's work situations. Mm-hmm. Um and that's, you know, that's the kind of contact we're talking about because generally if you're going to working with somebody every day, that's you know somebody, you know, that's you could say friendship, but it, but at least there's personal contact and knowing. So right. Um, so, so one of the ways that this number is usually cited is eighty, or it, I've seen it most cited is eighty six percent of Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists don't know, don't personally know a believer. So is there a significant difference between? I, I guess I was I thought when I first saw it in the in the latest uh, twenty fifteen issue of the Status of Global Mission, it said. 14% do know a believer, which is obvious, 86, 14. But then it said 14% of all non-Christians. And I thought, hmm. But then I realized, of course, most non-Christians, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists make up most of the non-Christians. So it would make sense that way. But is there a difference between the percentage of Muslim, Hindus, Buddhists that don't know a, or that do know a believer, or however you want to phrase that, and atheists and agnostics, their situation? Yeah. Yeah, there is a big difference. The the 14% is a little unfortunate of a coincidence because we originally published this 86% back in 2007. Mm-hmm. That's when we first did it. And then by the time we got to um, the Atlas, you could see that there was a clear difference between the Hindu, Buddhist, and and um, Muslim situation and other religions. And 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 actually, the the atheist agnostic one is is quite interesting because, um, apart from China, which complicates this, but in the Western world, most atheists and agnostics know Christians in their family, in you know, in their colleagues, and so on. And they many of them were Christians previously and have you know become agnostic, mainly agnostic, and then some have gone all the way to atheism. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very likely to know no Christians. So those numbers are quite high, except China is the place where there's more atheists and agnostics than anyone, and they're not as likely to know Christians, even though the church has been growing, you know, quite a bit in China. So in one sense, you have to say there's, you know, there's, let's say atheists and agnostics in the Western world are very likely to know Christians, whereas atheists and agnostics in Asia or particularly in China are not so likely. And in fact, they drag the number down because there's so many of them. Right. So, so but, it, but I think you're right that, you know, certain religions um, have more contact uh, than, and the ones that are highlighted in, in, uh, uh, you know, in missions mobilization tend to be the Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu 
Right. They are the ones with the least contact. So that number um, reflects that. Why do you think there's so little contact between Christians and non-Christians? Well, I think the main reason is something you touched on earlier, and that is, uh, and and this is changing. So I think there's a there's a good news ahead in this. But you know, all the Christians lived a hundred years ago. All the Christians lived in one place, and all the Muslims lived in another. So it was even worse, you know, a hundred years ago because you you just didn't they just didn't live together except in you know certain places. Um, whereas now there's a lot more mixing going on with migration and that sort of a thing. And secondly, so, so, so people from these religions are now living all over the world, much closer to Christians. So that's, you know, why it might be starting to go up a bit. Um, but then Christians are beginning to appear in many of these countries where they never were before. So, so a Hindu in Nepal, let's say, you know, 60, 80 years ago, had a very little chance ever of, of meeting a Christian, you know. So, but now the, that, you know, there's a lot of Christians in Nepal. And so that increases their their uh, chances quite a bit. But the, the reason that there's such a big gap is that, is that religionists were kind of, um, um, you know, cordoned off in people groups. I mean, they were most people in this group are Muslim, most people in this group are Christian, and so on. So, and that makes it difficult, you know, because then you have to cross a cultural barrier just to to meet somebody, even. Right. Um, so, so uh, I think that's, that, that's the simplest explanation. There's probably a lot of other things that are going on underneath it, but, so, so, so in discussing, you know, the future of this statistic, um, you know, I, I think, I think it's rather encouraging because now we have a lot of a lot better chance of people at least meeting each other. You know, whether they actually spend any time together is another thing. And there's a lot of books out there now and encouragement uh, for Christians to know more about these other religion and religions. And then also uh, to spend more time with people in these religions, you know, especially in the Western world. Now there's a lot of, um, books out there encouraging people to do it. And in our little church up here and far away from Cosmopolitan Boston, we had a very, very successful time uh, with that because people are eager, actually, Christians are eager to to make more friends. Um, uh, and not, not solely for evangelistic purposes, but simply to be, you know, for, for society to function better since it is more diverse now than it ever has been. So you see the um, the the movement of diasporas to be something of a of a real really truly really something of a strategic opportunity if we were to take advantage of it. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, last question. Um, well, two two final questions. Uh, what do you think? What do you think that the takeaway for this eighty six percent fourteen percent the 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 implications, the the so what would be, um, right? Well, no, it's actually pretty straightforward. And we and in in the place which we originally published this, which was in two thousand seven in Evangelical Missions Quarterly, we actually devoted half of the article 
to um, the theological rationale for why this was even important to measure. And, and at the heart of it is, is it's quite interesting, and that is that Christianity is incarnational in nature. You know, I mean, mm. in other words, uh, Jesus himself came and lived among us and knew us, you might say. Knew, you know, um, and so, so that, what that means is that, you know, a statistic showing the lack of contact, the lack of human contact, is really worrying because our faith is the op- opposite. It's a faith of contact, uh, of human contact, of, you know, of hospitality, friendship, good news, you know, preaching the good news and all of that. It's a human activity, one person to person, you might say. So, um, and of course, um, this isn't to, to, to downgrade the value of radio and the internet and television and, so, you know, or even, even books, you know, you can read a book without anybody else being around. But in the end, um, you know, human contact, face-to-face contact, personal contact, that's what we settled on, uh, is actually quite important to Christians. It's, a, it's, it's really at the heart of who we are. We're, we're meant to be in friendship with people, uh, all people, you know. So, so that, that's kind of the, the so what side of it, is that it, it has a theological basis uh, not, I mean, you can you, obviously you can bring mission in, and that's important. But even just just a straight biblical concept of um, uh, of uh, hospitality and, and, and incarnation and so on shows us that this is something that we should be concerned about. And then, and then, of course, the the thing to do about it is to encourage uh, Christians to to have more contact and to and to, uh, you know, do hospitality. And uh, I'm sure you've heard that, um, you know, uh, a a large percentage, people say maybe three quarters of all um, international students who come to the United States never set foot in an American home. Yeah. And and most of those homes are Christian, you know. So, and and Trisha and I, my wife and I, uh, every Thanksgiving every Easter, um, we bring international students to our home because Trisha teach, teaches them. And um, there, you know, this last time we had people from Turkey, Morocco, uh, Japan, Peru, and uh, you know, most of them had been in the United States about two or three, some four years. And we said we went around the table and we said, "Have any of you ever been in an American home?" And none of them had. Mm. We've done this for ten years. And every year it's the same. None of them have been invited. So, so, um, so that's a that's a place to start. You know, is just to have people over and people love it. It's you know, it's a it's such an honor to do. And you probably know. I mean, when you travel around the rest of the world, you get invited into people's homes. So it's a yeah. little strange not to be invited. Um, and and so I think there's you know training um, that has to go on in that area of just you know, helping people to be better, better at uh, contact. Um, One of my favorite verses, I think that's um, the, the way it's translated in the messages is, is the way I, I really appreciate it is um, it's the verse in, in the first chapter, of John, it goes um, uh, the word put on flesh. And I believe it goes the word put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Right. 
And I, I really like that because it, it conveys something that you don't you don't get outside of that translation. But what strikes me is that um, as you're talking about, you know, diasporas coming here and never being invited in, into an, an American home, you could kind of, in a way, reverse that. Because Jesus said, as you do it under the least of these, you do it to me. And so in a sense, you know, they are moving into our neighborhoods. You can you can view it as an opportunity to do unto Christ, do to Christ as do it unto the least of these. Um, I, I'm always staggered by the idea that the so many internationals come here and so many spend their entire time here and so many leave never really having been, you know, and that, that opportunity is there. So, right. So last one that I always ask people is um, for you in the role that you have, um, why do you do what you do? You know, as, as a researcher, as a, as somebody involved in this, what, what's, what, what's the motivation? Why, why do you do what you do? Yeah, I think um, because we're an academic institution, even though we, you know, we have a very wide audience ranging from church and mission leaders, as we've sort of been talking about here, to journalists, to academics, you know, students, uh, graduate students, many others. Um, I feel like, like um, we're doing this first and foremost to make sure that whoever is listening to us is getting as accurate and helpful information as they can get. Um, and we do, a, so, so, so we, we want Muslims, you know, um, Muslims in the Gulf states, you know, to, to uh, when they see our figures for Christians in Saudi Arabia, um, which they do, we want them to have a sense that, yeah, this, this makes sense. It's trustworthy. Once they get past the idea that there might even be Christians in Saudi Arabia. Right course and many of them most of them are filipinos and so on so but um so i think providing accurate information is a is is a is a deep underlying motivation for us that doesn't mean every all the information that comes out of here is accurate that's that's a big a challenge in itself but at least we're motivated for that and then of course the, the second layer to that is that we think um uh decisions made by mission agencies, by churches, by uh, leaders of NGOs, and, and so on, in, in the Christian, um, global Christian uh, mission enterprise, let's say, uh, that those are going to be better made if there's better information to, to base them on. So we are very hopeful that people will utilize the information to, to uh, make wise decisions. And um, uh, I think that really, in the end, is is uh, what motivates us here. Um, yeah. Great. Todd is a very good friend, dear friend of mine, has been for a very long time. Um, I will mention the Atlas book that he's talked about. I've got my own copy. Uh, and you guys are looking toward, eventually, the next edition of the World Christian Encyclopedia, correct? Yeah, that's right. No, we're actually working on it. I was working on it right before you called. I was editing some text in Afghanistan. So we're going through just just beginning the process of going through and updating all of that. And 
if all goes well, uh, should be should be out in about 2020. That'll be great. It's always uh, something that we look forward to. And then every year, of course, the status of global mission gets published in the International Bulletin of Mission Research and is linked to you guys' website, which has uh, a number of resources as well. And I'll put the URL up for that at the end of the video. Great. Todd, thanks. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, away from Afghanistan to talk with us about uh, the 86% number. Thank you.